And another reminder that Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It gives you everything you need in one place, and it's free. You can use it right from your phone or your computer. They have creation tools, so you can record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. And they'll distribute your podcast for free. So you can hear it on Spotify, Apple, Google, and many more. Just like us here at BraveMaker. Make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So download the Anchor app today and go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Hello, BraveMaker community. This is Tony Gapastone here doing a little pre-intro to the podcast today. This is going to be a follow-up to our two weeks of screening the film The Edge of Success by filmmakers Catherine Basigi and Lisa Meek. Uh, Really honored and privileged to be able to hold this conversation as suicide prevention is something very important for me after losing my grandmother to death by suicide in 2012 and two other significant people, friends in my life. Uh, I still feel as if I have a lot to learn and it's been really good to have these conversations. But let me just tell you that these conversations are just the, the tip of the iceberg We need so much more time to talk and to learn. We need so much more training. So just know that this hour conversation uh, is not going to fill every area of the topic. We can't possibly address every facet of mental illness or um, suicide. It's just such a big topic. So with that, please know that I'm going to put some links in the show notes from some of our partner organizations. And after screening it in both Redwood City and Nevada, California, huge shout out to all the organizations and the parents and the people who sat with us and told their stories. Kristen Eberwine shared her story of losing her son to suicide in Redwood City um, September 12th. Glenn and Kate Ruley shared about losing their son to suicide in Nevada, California on September 19th. And you'll get to hear a little bit of their story in this podcast. A huge thank you to Star Vista uh, in San Mateo County and to North Marin Community Services in Nevada and to the, the Buckaloo Program and to uh, the National Suicide Lifeline, which I will put that number here right now verbally and in the, the show notes. It's 800 273 8255. That's 1 800 273 TALK 8255. Please put that number in your phone, share it with someone, put it on your social media. 1 800 273 TALK. If you need any kind of help, please do that and check the show notes. It's a great way to stay in the loop for trainings. In fact, there are some trainings coming up this month in San Mateo County as well as Marin County. I love that Brave Maker has now expanded into two different cities. So thank you so much for the people participating in these screenings. Please like and share this podcast. Uh, if you can write a review on this podcast, that helps more people to find it. And if you or anyone you love is struggling with a mental illness or with thoughts of killing themselves, please reach out. Please get help. Please take care of yourself. We can't do this alone. Uh, The burden and the responsibility is not on one person. We can, as a community, as people of faith, as brave makers, as human beings who really want to see other people thrive, this is something that we must band together and unite to see some help and hope and prevention happen. So thanks for listening, and here's the podcast. Stop. 
stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker Podcast. All right, cool. Brave Maker Podcast. This is a mental health awareness and suicide prevention discussion. So strong and sensitive content in this discussion. So please be advised if this is something that might be difficult for you to listen to or there are children in the car, just be aware of that. So I have two filmmakers who we've been spending a lot of time together in the past week (laughs) uh, talking about these uh, concerns specifically for students and the pressures and anxieties that they undergo just being a teenager, just being in high school, just trying to be who a human, right? Uh, so Catherine Basigi and Lisa Meek, welcome to the Brave Maker podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah. So this uh, podcast is being recorded in Nevada, California, which is like in Marin County, uh, like 25 minutes over the Golden Gate Bridge. We had a screening last week in Redwood City, and you guys were our September screening. It was Suicide Prevention Month on Suicide Prevention, like a week, like a day or two after Suicide Prevention Day. So we are going to put a little bit of our panel discussion into this podcast tonight, but I wanted you to be able to hear at length a little bit more from Catherine and Lisa about their film, The Edge of Success. So let's just jump into it, you two. What in the world? Uh, you've been working on this project for four years. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Going almost on five, right? Almost five. I feel for you because the journey of making a film is so hard and exhausting and life-giving and exciting and dream-fulfilling and at the same time, like, I know, overwhelming. So uh, let's just first talk about making the film before we get into the content. You guys have made films before, yes? I have. Okay, and you have not. Mm -hmm. All right, so how did this come to be, this feature film for the first time, you, Catherine, and you... You know, made films before. How's that? I think it was somewhat serendipitous. So we, as the suicides in Palo Alto were happening, both Catherine and I came from it from very different angles, but we were both interested in it. We didn't know each other before we started this process. A mutual friend introduced us because Catherine was talking about maybe doing something. I was talking about maybe doing something. And this mutual friend put us in contact with each other saying, I think you guys should talk to each other. So we started talking and um, given both of our backgrounds, Catherine it comes from Palo Alto, knows the community very, very well. I don't come from Palo Alto. I live in the Bay Area. I live in Redwood City. And I knew about the pressures and everything else going on in there. And I wanted to dig deeper beyond just the headlines that people were reading about with this. So you two meet because a mutual friend recognizes that both of you have some of the same cares and all of a sudden, boom, you're making a film together. I mean, was it like that quick or? It kind of was actually. I mean, we were pretty well aligned from the get go, I think, in terms of the perspective that we wanted to surface through the film. And we felt that what we were reading in these articles had become national news at this point. And what we were reading in the articles was not reflective of one very important voice, which was the students. And so both of us really felt that the film needed to be from that perspective. And that was going to be the sort of a successful film for us was being able to tell that story from the diverse um, student perspective within the Palo Alto community. 
I love that uh, this film came because someone like connected you because I feel like so many of the stories that really get me in the filmmaking world are people like collaborating because doing it alone is really tough, you know? So the fact that you two like merge your superpowers and co-direct it, I think is really cool. It for sure was a bringing together of all of our different backgrounds, our skill sets, our non-skill sets of different things and being able to figure out, okay, well, we're not going to have all these answers, but we'll figure out one way or another. And by hooker and by crook, we figured out how to do it. I do have experience in documentary filmmaking. I have experience in storytelling. I have experience in video production, all of those things. What I didn't have the experience in was the getting enmeshed within the community, finding the people. I know how to find people, but Catherine being able to bring that expertise was huge. And Catherine's like, I'll figure out. I told her, like, we need this, this, and this. She's like, on it. (laughs) So you felt like both bringing different strengths. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I didn't know anything about filmmaking, and so I was super appreciative of, like, actually having someone who just had that built-in knowledge and a huge amount of care for the project, Um, and also Lisa's a mother of three. And so that brought another angle to it. Um, I went to Gunn High School, so that was sort of my perspective. And I think it's important to bring those different perspectives into this process because you don't want the film to be sort of based on your own biases and your own perspective. You want it to be well-rounded. And I think that our inherent perspectives being different actually really benefited the project. What do you think you learned as filmmakers doing this project? So much. Yeah. I learned how to make a film. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, I mean, I think the thing is, every time you do a film, you think about, you go back and you think about all the things that you would do differently, right? Um, I would have liked to immerse ourselves a little bit more into the kids' lives a little bit, um, get more hands-on. We tried different things. Like we equipped all of the kids with GoPros because we're like, okay, that's a way to get them to be able to tell us what's going on without feeling like we have a film crew in with them. But none of them, they used them, but they never liked what they had. So they would delete the files. So Uh, that was like They censored themselves in some way or? Yeah, I think they were just, and as I've seen it with my own kids, right? Like They'll take, just even yesterday, my daughter was looking for a photo for something she's shadowing kids at a high school, or she's a shadow leader for kids at a high school, and she was looking for a photo, and she was scrolling through my phone looking for a photo, and she didn't like any of them. So I think it's like, you know, we're all a little self-critical of ourselves, and I think maybe that was it. Had we given them all of the footage, maybe they would have deleted everything that we had of our, you know, that we had shot. So that was one learning experience, I think. Um... The fundraising aspect of it is oh, <laughs> grueling. That could be, yeah. 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 So what did you learn? What would you do different for your next one? Um, I would try and get some of the funding out ahead of time. Um, I think that we could have leveraged a little bit better. Um, trying, And we tried. I mean, we have spreadsheets of people that we're contacting and other things like that. If we could have found like a partner right from the get-go, I think that would have been helpful. We had some just angels literally coming in with funds when we needed it, which was so helpful. Um, Catherine and I both put in our own. We're, we were passionate enough about this film that we knew we want. We were going to get it made one way or another, so we put in some of our own funds as well um, because we felt both so strongly that this film had to be made. 
Um, I think we worked really well together. I mean, filmmaking, as you know, can be a very stressful time as you're just trying to get it done. Um, but we were always, I think, really supportive of each other of like, okay, well, we got to do this. We're going to do this. Yeah, I think there was definitely good accountability because, you know, when you're busy, it's like this could easily fall to the back burner. But I think we both felt that time was of the essence to get this project um, out because we followed the students for two school years. And so we owed it to them and the community to show them the product um, of that work. And I, I think it, it definitely paid off spending that much time on the project. Yeah. I mean, your comments about uh, raising the money, one thing I just want to say, being in Silicon Valley, I often find myself like lying to myself. The thing, there's so much money out there. Like everybody is making so much money. Of course, people are going to want to throw it at the arts. It's not true. It's really hard for that yes. ask. And my friend and I were chatting today who also made a feature film. His first feature film was re really challenging to get made. They're not making their money back as quickly as they had hoped. But he said, with, with Silicon Valley investors, they're seeing money all the time with startups. You know, not all the time, but for the most part, they can see a big return on their investment. Mm -hmm. They know that the arts aren't always a great return. So why would they want to? So I was like depressed uh, after that conversation. And then I thought, so I think it, it, it means we have to find people who have so much money or, or, or are willing to sacrifice that money on behalf of, a, of the cause or they believe in us as mm -hmm. filmmakers so much that they're willing to go, I don't necessarily need the money or I don't get it back. That's okay. Right. I don't know. What do you think about that? And that I would a hundred percent agree. I think especially when you do an issue based film sure. and trying to find those people, we went through a 5013C so it could people could donate to the nonprofit um, and then obviously yes. it's a fiscal sponsor yep. would then give us the funds for it so they could do it as a donation yep. because That's smart. people know yep. that overall the arts and films, it's hard to make a, any return, let alone a decent return on your investment. So, And we, we are, with the Brave Maker, we are doing one fiscally sponsored project this year and we're going to be doing two in 2020. So if you're listening and you do have a project that you want to submit to us, uh, let us know. Email me, Tony at BraveMaker.com because we're trying to support filmmakers. And even then, I'm sure it was hard, right? Even though you could say you're going to get a tax write-off, it's still hard having people part with their money. It's still hard. It's when people find find a reason to attach themselves to it because they believe in the film and they believe in the people doing it and they believe in the cause regardless of what the outcome will or will not be. Um, grant, we, I don't know, how many grants did we oh, apply to? Many, many dozens of grants. Lots yeah. of rejections, I'm and sure. Lots of rejection. I think it, one of the hardest things for us was the community was a little bit, I think, cautious of what we were trying to do. Sure. And so there were people who were interested um, but we felt that they wanted some degree of oversight in, in the, on the end product. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know what direction the project was going to take. We didn't know what the students were going to say. And by no means were we going to, you know, modify the content to fit an, an agenda. Another hard thing when people want to give money with strings attached it's like i'll give you this money but i would like to have a creative part or i want to i want to have editing rights yeah, right exactly. you can't have final say yeah that was a non-starter mm -hmm. there were a couple of people that asked about that and we said sorry yep. we would love this but we have to do it 
our own way. And Lisa and Catherine, you both have full-time jobs too in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley. So I just want to talk about that real quick before we get into the content of the film. Uh, you're not, you know, having the luxury like 3% of filmmaking world has. You're like the 97% who work other jobs and have lives. And so talk about that. What was it like you know, doing it on top of the 60, however many hours a week you work? <laughs> uh, well, I, first I would say that um, we did a lot of nights, weekends, early mornings, vacation days, uh, time off to be able to get it done. Um, I switched jobs in between making this film. So I had like three weeks off, um, that actually, that was a big chunk of the time wherein I scripted it. So I was able to do it. Um, I'm lucky enough. I have a fairly flexible work flexible in the sense of I can work at home so I can make my hours. As long as I'm getting my work done, that pays my mortgage. I'm able to do it. Um, I have very, um, supportive, bosses and people who know that I'm going to get my work done. It might not be sometimes within those regular nine to five hours that I do it, but I'll be up late or get up early if there are other things that are going on with it that made it possible. It was for sure challenging, but um, being able to have that support from um, your bosses, I would I would recommend to people who are thinking of doing it be and you already have a full-time job be transparent with your bosses don't try and hide and you know like not say what you're doing everyone knows exactly what I was doing when I was doing it and how I was doing it because I felt accountable yes to the film but also to my full-time job I'll get to you Catherine in a second but just to comment on that I think you know, sometimes as filmmakers, we do feel like we have to hide things because we feel like people are going to think we're divided. And I have had conversations before when I had a different job where people said to me, you seem like you're not as passionate about this work as you are about film work. I'm like, "Ah, that's just not a fair thing to say. Cause like nobody would say like, Oh, you really like hiking. You're not really attentive in the meeting. I mean, we all have passions and things that we should be doing to keep our uh, like our humanity alive. If all we do is work and go home, it's like, what a boring life. We all should be encouraging our employees to be doing things yes. outside of work. So I think I'm right on with you. And if you're a supervisor in some way, encourage your employees to have passions. And I'm assuming some people maybe got on board with you because they heard about your passions. Is oh, that potentially sure. true? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I felt that my, my company was super supportive. My family was super supportive. And so, um, I think that Lisa's exactly right. Being transparent about what we were doing was, was really important, um, for my sanity as well. I think, uh, just because it, it, it was a taxing project, a taxing process, both from the time standpoint and emotionally, um, just in terms of the content, it was really trying at times. And so, a lot of people were really impressed that we were even, you know, attempting to to do this and to tell that side of the story. Um, and so I think it opened up a lot of conversations with with coworkers that I wouldn't have otherwise had, and, and a lot of vulnerability. And I think that's exactly what we've found, you know, also connecting with you and through Brave Maker. Just that is the power of um, these kinds of stories: is the conversations that it opens and the dialogue that it invites that you wouldn't otherwise maybe know things about a person that they share with you because they know you're involved in a project like this. I agree. Yeah. So let's talk about that, the content of the film, The Edge of Success. Uh, It's not an easy one, and to carry that for almost five years. I mean, even this week alone, you know, I was feeling a sense of, like, weight. We shared it 
a week ago today. So we're screening this in Nevada now. It's funny because as we're having this dialogue, I'm looking at my watch going, okay, we got this much time before the film ends. <laughs> so we screened it last week in front of like 300 and think something-ish people. Tonight we have about 120-ish people. Uh, but in a week's time, the conversations that I had afterwards and then just other life things. We were looking at an article a minute ago of another death by suicide. It's heavy. How did you make it through yourself personally? And then let's talk a little bit about how you navigated those stories. Well, for me, I'm always about connections, right? I mean, for me, first, personally, I want to know what was going on. I, As Catherine mentioned, I have three daughters. My oldest one is a junior in high school. I have an eighth grade daughter and a sixth grader. So 11, 13, and 16. And I'm in the throes of it. I was going to say dude, but you're here too. So, I mean, I'm in the throes of it. Like 150%. So when it was first happening, my oldest was in middle school. So I'm like, what? how can I make sure that she's okay? How can I make sure that the kids are okay? Um, And that's how I originally got interested in it. And then once we got met the kids who are in the film, I attached myself to them you know some of them I say and we still keep in contact with them and um I had lunch with one of them a couple of weeks ago and I said little did you know when I asked to do an interview with you a couple of interviews with you that four and a half years later we would still be here I'd be at your graduation I'd be talking to you about your girlfriend I would be doing all of this um so you can't go into this a project like this without having these connections with these kids and their families and um, all of these people because they do open themselves up. Um, so both Catherine and I always had the kids' um, best interest at heart. Could we have made a different film that um, may not have taken that way? Probably, yeah, we could have. But um, our goal was also to practice protect these kids because it's their lives. This is not fiction. It's their lives. And so we had many tough conversations about um, editorial content that was was or was not going to go into the film because of, um, you know, their own sensitivities and being sensitive to them. Yeah. I mean, I think the process was pretty amazing uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. And the due diligence that we did up front, meeting with people, connecting with the community, just trying to sort of understand the dynamics at play, what organizations had been involved in trying to fix this, um, who the key players were, what the different perspectives were. I mean, we had some really heart-wrenching conversations when the cameras weren't rolling, but what was stunning was some of the conversations that happened when the cameras came on that really caught us by surprise sometimes. And so I think that that speaks to the relationship that we had built with people before we started filming, where they were comfortable opening up on camera, which is, you know, I've now, we've done a couple interviews on camera since, and it's it's hard when that camera's looking at you. <laughs> um, and so that vulnerability that they displayed was, you know, I, I really was honored that they, they trusted us with that story um, and with that side of, of their life. Uh, I was definitely impressed with some of the maturity of these high school students and again, their transparency and, and also awareness of their 
their own bubble, right? Like some of them commenting on like, I'm in this space and I know that there are other people who don't have these type of privileges, but here I am stressing over these, you know, things that I get to do. And I, I appreciated that a lot. Um, so we're going to hear from the panel discussion that we are going to do tonight. So I'm not going to ask some of those questions because you'll hear them on the panel uh, in a little bit. But I'd just love for you to say, what were the highlights for you? Like, what did you take away from the students? Uh, what did you feel like was a, a memory that maybe wasn't caught on camera or anything else you could share that, you know, we haven't talked about on our panels? That's a tough one. I mean, I think we, we've had so many meaningful interactions with different folks who are involved in the project. Um, I think being welcomed into the families, as Lisa said, and, and being able to spend some time with them sort of behind the scenes, so to speak, and really get to know them was, was really special. Um, and so that happened with a few students. I think um, Julie Lithcott-Hames and her son, Sawyer, were also part of the film. Um, and I think one of my favorite interactions is when we had dinner with them before we screened the film uh, at the Portland Film Festival. We just the conversations between them are are so just amazing to witness. And so we, we've we've had some really special moments, just those sort of unscripted, so to speak, um, family time. I think that was yeah. I mean, the kids are they blow me away. I mean, just who they are, and they're all so different. You know, you have kids too, so you know that each kid is their own unique self, right? And they brought their true selves to this documentary. Um, And so to be able to see that, and also we follow them, and to still know them from when we first met with them, I think we met with most of them at coffee shops Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) beforehand, just to see if they were interested in it, and seeing them from those first meetings to where we are now and um, at the screening last week that Olivia was at and just seeing them turn into these amazing adults. It's just so cool. And seeing how they've gone, you know, I was, to be quite blunt, I was worried about several of them and their mental health Mm -hmm. Um, and not knowing how they were going to be. Um, but being able to see that they're all, knock on wood, whatever we want to knock on, that they're doing well um, and are healthy and they are taking care of themselves and they're talking. And all of them are proud of what they did because of what help they might be able to give other kids. How do you as a parent handle the stress or paranoia, however you want to Mm -hmm. frame it, knowing what you know? Because... I know a lot. I've lost my grandmother to suicide. I had lost a great friend. And now I look at my kids. I've seen your documentary three times. <laughs> it's sometimes like I have to tell myself, like, chill out, Tony. Just take a breath. You know, be present in their lives. I can't save them from everything. It's a little... It messes with me. It's, I'll give you an a- anecdote. So... Well, a couple of things. So when I first started, I was probably one of those parents that was hyper-focused on grades with the kids. And then as I started doing this process, I totally went, I I like to say 180 different. I don't know if my daughters would say that necessarily, but I definitely changed the way that I look at grades and academics for them because at the end of the day, they're great human beings. I know that. And so 
that's what I care about. I don't care what grade you get in math. Um, so, I mean, to some extent, I want them to pass. But um, beyond that, like, I care about their mental health, who they are, if they're doing well. And a couple of weeks ago, my daughter, my, my uh, high school junior, she wasn't feeling well. And she texted. I was at the office working and said, hey, I'm really not feeling well. Can I come home? Are you guys home? And I said, no. You know, my husband and I were both uh, working and not at home. And I said, yeah, what's going on? And she's like, I just have a terrible cold. But to your point, that thought goes in. Is she physically sick with a cold or is it a mental health thing? And her junior year is a tough year um, and all of those things. And, and I told her later, I'm like, I wanted to make sure you're okay. I had that conversation with her later just to be able to say, I just want to make sure you're okay and that school isn't getting the better of you. And if you need to change one of these classes because it's too much, then let's change it. We won't have this on the podcast this time because it was on our panel from last week. But one of the the moms, Kristen, who lost her son to suicide, said something really impactful to me that she didn't want to ask the question. Like she didn't want to ask that mental health question because she was afraid of the answer. And I I totally appreciated her transparency that um, if she could have changed anything, it would have been, hey, are you going to hurt yourself? And do you have a plan? Is there a plan? So I think that's just something, you know, outside of the filmmaking, brave making, uh, if you are a parent or just a friend and you have someone you're concerned about, it's a hard thing to be able to ask someone who is showing some signs. And some of the signs we'll talk about, you know, later in the podcast when we have our panel discussion um, imported into here. But if you see someone showing the signs that are talked about later, just make those questions. Even if it feels like, ah, this is really awkward to ask, but if it's framed and like, I love you, I love you so much and I care about you. And I'm just saying this because, hey, your life is more important than grades or the awkwardness that I might feel or the, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. So yeah, I I totally, I, I, I have three daughters as well. And, you know, when my eight-year-old says, like, I'm stressed out, I'm like, honey, you're eight years old. Like, okay, let's let's talk about this. What are you stressed out about? Like, I want to, you know, get in there and make this a safe mm-hmm. conversation to have. So thanks for starting, you know, the, this, uh, or making this film and giving, you know, me specifically conversations that I could have with my kids. I, I really appreciate it. So anything else you want to say before uh, we log off here? I love that we all got connected. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it has been so fulfilling and energizing for people who don't right know on. Tony. You, I don't know how you have so much energy. Oh my gosh! You, Coffee, I mean, I know that caffeine. I know that you talk about and you're transparent about when you are feeling overwhelmed mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and your own stresses at times. But your enthusiasm and belief in the power of story is infectious thank you and it makes us want to follow in your footsteps awesome awesome couldn't couldn't say couldn't say it better um and yeah i would i would also just echo what what tony was saying about um about you know how we should be opening the the door for dialogue here and and i hope that the panel that that is going to also be inserted into the podcast to to follow this conversation invites some of that and starts the juices flowing about how we can have those kinds of conversations because i think that's my biggest takeaway is people are looking for a silver bullet Uh, when they when they watch this film or when they read articles about communities they want to know why why is this happening 
And mental health is a very individual thing. And so I think it's important that, uh, that we treat it that way. And it starts by having conversations. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, to you know, just piggyback on that, we will, if you're, you know, please keep listening because you will have uh, resources and phone numbers and websites that you can get tools. Follow up at theedgeofsuccessmovie.com is their film, and they've got Jed Foundation things on there. So we'll talk more about that later as well. And then to Lisa, your point, like, uh, you know, for anybody out there who's just struggling to get their story out in the world to make it, I mean, Brave Maker is here for that. Please follow along with us because it's hard. And I, I think I'm sometimes I, I cope with being optimistic. I think my energy, like I'm trying to go, I'm trying to fill the void that I want in my life too. Because I know, like I'm so appreciative of anybody who makes a movie. It's it's a miracle. It's like you just yes. you cannot. It's a it's a dang a miracle, way. right? Yes. That you made it. So kudos to you guys for doing it. Brave Maker is here for for you for you listeners. If there's anything we can do to help you, encourage you. If you have a film, submit it to the film festival and film free way and hopefully we'll be having conversations with you someday soon too oh can you guys um, do you want to put out your social media where people can find you if they want to connect with yeah, you yeah we're on instagram at edge of success edge of success we're on twitter facebook if you look at for edge of success movie you can find us yep so with that here is the uh panel discussion that we had brave stories change the world you are the story here come on up to the stage and they'll all be a part of this panel discussion so let's uh take a big deep breath in i told you last time to, to inhale but i didn't tell you to exhale so now you get to exhale uh let's start with you two why this film needed to be made and why by you two um well catherine and i come from it from two very different areas um my background is in broadcast journalism. Uh, for a very long time, I worked in television news for most of my career um, in investigations. And when the suicides were happening in Palo Alto, I was first looking at it from a standpoint of an investigative news story. Um, I quickly realized that this was not a story that could be told within the confines of a local newscast. Um, three to five minutes was not going to give it the sensitivities and depth that it deserved. Um, so I started researching it. I'm also a parent with three kids, two teenagers right now. At the time, I only had one teenager. But uh, in the process of four and a half years of making the film, kids grow up, shockingly enough. Um, so that's really where I came from. And I'll let Catherine explain her. Yeah, so um, Lisa and I got connected through serendipitous circumstances um, through a mutual friend who knew we were both interested in the project. Um, and as Lisa mentioned, we come at it from different angles. So I grew up in the Palo Alto area and went to Gunn High School long before um, these clusters took place. But 
the experience of the students was, you know, a unique concern of mine as a result of my background um, in the Palo Alto community and the fact that I was living there as an adult and seeing these headlines that were starting to make national news about what was happening in my community. And what was not present when you read these articles was the perspective of the students. And as a former student myself, I felt that that was a huge miss and something that we needed to play, pay closer attention to. And so um, that was my goal in approaching the film. And luckily, Lisa and I were very, very well aligned from that from the get-go. Oh, we do want to hear from students because this tonight specifically we're here because we want to resource students. We, we want Novato students, San Marin and Novato and all the surrounding high schools and middle schools to have the ability to say, I need help. And for parents and families and teachers and those who are supporting their students to know what resources are available. Um, I thought it'd be interesting uh, to share because we talked about this. We screened this last week as well in um, the peninsula in our cities. Uh, there, uh, this is obviously a hard topic to talk about. Uh, it is not easy. Um, it could become defensive. Uh, we could start blaming whose fault is this? Why are students going through these pressures? We can point fingers at parents. We could point fingers at administrators. That's not the goal uh, here whatsoever. The goal is to say we, we need help. We need to stop. We need to talk. Uh, but can you address a little bit of the challenges of making the film and how, when you first started, you were welcomed into the, the school system and then what happened as a result of that when the film was released? Yeah, so when we started making the film, um, we, we had a lot of conversations with different members of the community, including um, the superintendent at the time and the principal of Gunn High School. Um, and through those conversations, I think they realized we were going to make this film with or without their participation. And so they opted to allow us to uh, actually come into the classroom. Um, and you know, they weren't exactly supporting the film, but they were not by any means trying to prevent us from making it. And so they allowed us to film the students in the classroom, as you saw. Um, we were there on campus quite frequently during the making of the film over the two years that we were filming. And by the time uh, we were ready to release the film about a year ago, there had been a lot of turnover in the administration of both the school, Gunn High School, and the district and the superintendent. And as a result of that, um, I think there was a, a lapse in communication maybe in that changeover. Um, and so they were caught by surprise um, by this project. And um, as a result, I think the surprise led to some defensiveness. Uh, a lot of the folks who were part of the school at that point were, were newer to the area and I think didn't really know um, how to approach the issue and therefore kind of approached it with, with a lot more defensiveness than the prior administration. And so we were, we were met with a lot of um, reluctance to engage. Um, and some attempts to kind of prevent parents from wanting to see the film, which actually just meant that people wanted to see it more. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just want to add to that that when we announced we were going to screen this through our Brave Maker screening, and this is our first one here in Nevada, and I'm just so grateful that the Quest and Good Shepherd and Nevada High and North Marin Community Services said, let's, let's do this. This is an important topic. I know it's not easy. Again, there's no pointing of fingers. Um, but when we did it last week, uh, we had three different people from the Palo Alto community who basically said, please, don't, don't do this. Don't show the film. 
And it was really hard because I got these impassioned letters and I, then I felt like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Am I making a mistake? And, uh, and ultimately I had to say, I, I really, you know, I think the film is important. It's hard, hard to watch. And some of the images and stories can be uh, strong and, and triggering. Uh, so with all of the language we possibly could, I thought we wanted to make sure that people knew what they were getting into, just having the conversation. And it was a good conversation to have. We had, you know, we've been talking at length about this. I'm a parent. It's helped me recognize that grades aren't everything. Uh, you know, I went to community college. I didn't go to, I went to three years of community college and I ended up okay, right? Uh, uh, so, so I'm just curious for you two as students, uh, we have Kiara from Novato High here and Toby from San Marin. What were your thoughts as you saw the phone? Any reflections as a student? Anything else you wanna lead us in? Questions, I would love you guys to have, have a moment here. Yeah, um, I think this film, what was so important is just that this is such a prevalent topic, not only in our society, but also in our community, unfortunately, since we've faced so much tragedy over the past two years, I wanna say. And it is such a relevant thing. And often when we're read that letter that we find out that someone has died by suicide in class, it's usually goes silent, you know? And I think starting the discussion and finding the right way to talk about it is the most important part. And so I think that film is, this film is a really good step forward to that. Just finding the right way to not, to be comfortable talking about it and how to be formal about it and to be correct, yeah. I think it's really important to show every side of the situation so you get to see the perspective of the school board and teachers and people that are trying to help and people that don't really try to help and students that it affects and students that it doesn't necessarily affect and students that want to help and students that are just plain scared and, you know, parents who are understanding and want to help, but some parents aren't like that, you know? Some parents don't understand. And it shows the different sides and different causes of depression and anxiety and school pressure and, and that like struggle of suicidal ideation. Because that section of like just understanding how it would affect your peers and affect your community and not wanting to do that to them and living for other people rather than living for yourself is something that I understand and it's very important to learn about because a lot of people don't pay much attention to that kind of thing. And like the type of suicidal ideation that's not just suicide, but it's hoping that something would happen to you. So there's a very big difference there. Um, or just wanting to make it look like an accident and not want, wanting people to know, not wanting people to think that you've done this to them because there's so much guilt around suicide and people being like, oh, it's just, it's selfish because you're not making the pain go away. You're just putting it on to somebody else. Like that's not gonna make anybody feel any better about their situation. Like I myself struggle with intrusive thoughts about crashing my car. It's just a hard thing. Cause like you tell that to people and they're like, oh, you shouldn't drive anymore. Like you should just, you know. But there's a difference between thoughts and actions. 
you know. Thank you for your transparency and honesty. Uh, it is a complicated yeah. subject. Um, and that, that conversation about the differences and the nuances, uh, I want George and Chelsea from North Marin Community Services to talk about, so you mentioned things that are not helpful to say, right? Um, I feel like this conversation sometimes, even just the language that I'm so grateful that many people have given to me to remove the word committed and start using death by suicide has been really, really instrumental and helpful for me. And then how to say something, if someone shares something honestly, just like that, like what doesn't help, right? Uh, what actually provides more guilt sometimes in helping and pushing people into withdrawal. So can you too, with your work with the North Marine Community Services, comment on that? Of course, of course, yes, and thank you. And I do want to acknowledge first, you know, that this is a really big topic. It's a difficult topic, and it is so wonderful that everyone is taking the time here today to show up to learn so that we can be more supportive and we can we can start to change and we can start to learn, you know, what is supportive? How are we going to help our, our friends and our family and our students? And so in terms of um, things that we can do to help support students. I think what a lot of people really kind of fall into, a trap of we want to be seeking a solution uh, and give good advice. And I think that is where we are really missing an opportunity to connect and to listen. And this is more where we need, where if we're gonna be supportive to, our, to, our, to those that we love, we need to put ourselves into a position where we're going to sit back and we're going to listen, we're going to hear the struggles, and we're going to hear the thoughts. And let me acknowledge, that is hard. That's hard. But we have to sit and we have to listen, and we can connect with the person rather than jumping right into a solution, just like you were mentioning, oh, just don't drive a car. That isn't what it's, that's not what's, you know, going to help you ultimately. If anything, we want to find, you know, what is going to be supportive, and in order for us to figure that out, we need to listen to you. And it's going to be different for every person. And that's what's wonderful, though, is because we know um, we have that relationship with our loved ones, and so we know what's sort of normal for them, we know it's not, but we have to be willing to sit back and listen to that. And in terms of language that um, might be more helpful, you're right. We're, we don't use the language commit suicide anymore. It's die by suicide. And if we're going to be talking about mental illness, we, we don't label anymore. We don't want to say, oh, they're crazy, they're depressed, they're this. This is, we want to change it. This is a person who is struggling with a mental illness. This is a person who has depression. We're not leading with the label anymore. We want to sit back and recognize that this is human. They're, we're people and we're here to listen. The stigma is real, right? Yeah. So being able to destigmatize is really important to normalize that people sometimes do get sad and sometimes there is clinical depression, right? So being able to have the conversation to distinguish, I think is also something I'm learning that I go, yeah. I don't really know how to navigate that, but I, I want to be able to use language that helps people feel like comfortable and safe. And uh, I wonder if you could share some warning signs, things that if we were to see something 
or notice or observe how we might enter into a conversation without mm -hmm. putting someone um, in an uncomfortable place. And sometimes you have to. You have to be able to ask a question that is uncomfortable. Can you comment on that at all? Absolutely. Again, I want to go back to your being around your loved ones, you kind of know what's normative for them and what's not. And so any sudden changes in behavior is usually a really big warning sign. Um, so if this is someone who's usually much more extroverted and outgoing and suddenly they're isolating themselves, this is a big sign. Um, and, and likewise too, maybe if, even if they're more introverted and suddenly they're more extroverted, that's actually, um, it, can, it can be a, another warning sign just because it's a little abnormal. Um, any uh, um, lots of talk about death or frequent rumination and thoughts um, and basic um, views of themselves. Um, if they have negative self-beliefs and judgments and um, believing that they're a burden to others, you really just want to listen for that and you want to um, be able to support them and let them know that you're here to listen. Um, is there anything you wanted to add, George? Yeah, yeah. I, think I, should, I think I could add a little bit. Um, it is those little small things of like, you know, feeling like a burden or feeling helpless. Um, and I want to second on the active listening. Um, that listening can be silence, um, just sitting there. And that silence is really heavy. It's very rich when you're sitting with someone with that silence. Um, I do have the luxury of uh, sitting as a counselor one-on-one -on -one once a week with students for an hour. And not a lot of parents get to have that. And so those check-ins um, are very valuable. Um, making it a daily thing, five minutes, very valuable. Um, I kind of wanted to kind of point to that, the film where Sawyer's mother did just a simple check-in about the classes, and boom, like, I can do that? Like, that was very, uh, it, it speaks to something like that, so, yeah. And you have, like, free teen clinic every Wednesday, so people should know about that at, from t 2 to 5? What time is it open? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, that's actually, uh, I am actually the mental health counselor that works there on Wednesdays. And so we're open every single Wednesday from 1.30 to 5 p.m. Um, and uh, students are able to access um, reproductive health care and information there, and then also drop-in counseling as well. One thing that was really helpful for me that a friend of mine who lost her son to suicide told me, uh, obviously the hardest thing to learn, and we're going to tell hear from the Rulies here in a second, uh, is that the question she didn't want to ask was, are you planning to harm yourself? And if you do notice these signs from a friend, from a loved one, uh, really hard, because sometimes we don't want to hear the answer. But you know, can you, do you want to comment on that? Is there you know, appropriateness and other language that would be helpful if we do see these signs? What should be a follow-up question or two when we do see those? Yes, yeah, thank you for actually touching on that because that might be one of the most scariest things that we do have to do, but we need to be direct and we need to be able to ask that question outright. And so if you're noticing invitations for suicide and you're noticing those warning signs, you need to be able to say, are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of suicide? And by allowing, by using that direct language, we're giving permission for our loved ones to talk to us. And that is just how we get the dialogue going. And I know that just the thought of that can be really, you know, really close to home. And so I encourage you to almost practice it or even think about um, being able to say it in your own words. I sometimes like to acknowledge the warning signs uh, and say, hmm, 
thoughts of helplessness, feeling like a burden? Are you thinking of suicide? And saying it just like that, you're being direct and you're giving them that permission to be able to talk about it and that it's okay for them to talk about it with you. So Kate and Glenn are here and this is, I know, really fresh and raw for you as this is the year where you lost uh, your son, Warren. And this is a different story for you because you told me you didn't see these signs. And so I wonder what you want to share now. Uh, it's only been six months, seven months now. Uh, my heart goes to you and I can't, we can't even imagine the pain. I know some of the friends here in this building have experienced this grief, but what do you want to share? What is something that you're learning and sharing as this story is part of your journey now? Well, as most of you know, when I start talking, I kind of go all over the place. So <laughs> um, I get emotional and I have so many things that I want to say. And um, so I want to try to keep it as concise as I can. And so um, what, what we found in retrospect that the, was that there were, were signs. We didn't see the signs because they were so subtle. And um, our son was an introvert. He was um, already um, withdrawn and didn't participate a lot in, in family activities and things like that. And um, so he slowly just withdrew more and more. And it was so gradual. And I feel like he just sort of slipped away. And he um, started isolating more and more. But the other signs, those obvious signs, they weren't there. So basically, um, because outwardly he was doing everything, succeeding, thriving, just um, we really felt like he was on track to go off to college. You know, he um, was doing everything that he needed to do to make that happen. And um, Glenn can share more about what he was doing. And um, I know that's what he likes to share. Um, but we did find journal um, entries um, after he died. And, and that really helped us see inside his mind and what was going on in there. Because he never shared. He never talked. He didn't know how to connect. And, and so he had a lot of intrusive thoughts. And Kiara was talking about that. And I think a lot of us have those. I have them. Um, people with OCD have them repeatedly, the same thoughts. They're intrusive. They're disturbing. They make you feel like you're going crazy. And that's what happened with our son. And he, and he just tried to fix himself. And he was, was not sleeping. The insomnia, that's a big, that's a big one. Huge problem. Um, and um, he wasn't sleeping, so we tried to get him some help for that. And he'd just been released from the sleep program, the sleep study program, two days before his death. And he was asked every time he talked to his doctor, are you depressed? Are, are you suicidal? Nope, 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 fine. He released him from the program. And two days later, he was dead. So even someone, you know, a doctor, trained professional, was not able to see. Um, what was going on with him, but um, he thought he could fix himself. 
and he couldn't. Um, so just my advice to, to parents, um, my, my main thing is connect with your kids any way you can. You know, make eye contact with them. That's really important. We couldn't make eye contact with him. He didn't want to be hugged. He didn't want physical, um, you know, any uh, affection. Um, he would always shrink away from me. And after a while, I just kind of, I got frustrated and I gave up and I just stopped trying. And um, I just let him slip away. I didn't know that's what was happening, but um, anyway, um, just keep trying, try to break through, keep, you know, trying to get um, eye contact from them, connect, and um, just let them know you're there, you care, and, and you'll, you know, that they can talk to you, um, and I could go on and on. Um, and for the students, um, young people today, you do not need to try to fix yourself. And I love how Kiara speaks up, and she just, I love this girl so much. She's just amazing, and, um, and she just, she tells it like it is. So she's, I don't think I need to talk to the students because she, she definitely covered that. <laughs> Young people, anyone suffering with these things, um, she covered all that. So I'm going to let my husband talk a little bit now. <laughs> so here you go. Thank you. Where do I even start? So much good stuff being said here today. Um, how do we get people to talk? How do we make it so people can talk about it? As Kate was saying, our son, he wouldn't talk about it. He wouldn't express his feelings. Yes, how are you doing? I'm okay. Um, and, you know, every morning he, he got himself up out of bed. You know, we never had to go wake him up. He was always up. He was always ready to go to school. As a matter of fact, he's usually, come on, we're going to be late to school. We got to go. And, uh, you know, and, and so other signs, too, around um, he was wanting to, he was, come, came down one morning just about, uh, just a few weeks before he died. Um, hey, Dad, uh, teach me how to cook eggs. I want to learn how to cook a good breakfast. You know, and, and um, oh, and how do you make those good protein smoothies? You know, and, and, and just showing all these outward um, signs of, of really wanting to take care of himself. And I guess in, in retrospect, you know, the, the difference here is it was a change. And that um, it, it wasn't, even though it was a change for the good, and, and in my mind, it was like, wow, this is awesome. He's, he's doing great. He's getting out there. He's doing it. But if you see any changes like that, and it can be positive, and that's the hardest part, you know. So try to talk. Ask those questions. Um, another thing I wanted to, to, to mention is um, the, the, the support systems from the suicide hotline, from the, the, these groups here, from everything out there. The wellness it's center here. The wellness campus. center. But it's not just available for the person that's having the struggles. If, if, if you see that your parent, that your child is having trouble and you don't know what to do, you can call those hotlines. You can get help. You can help them get the help they need. Um, you know, just, just talk and support and um, you know, I, I'm overwhelmed by the amount of, of love and support that has been shown to us in this time. 
it's there. I mean, that, that love is there. Unfortunately, it, it came you know, too late for us, but that's there and leverage it. That's a really good word. I know we're all busy and we have so many things going on in our lives. It's a reminder that look to your left, look to your right. Who's in your life? Who do you need to look into the eye? Who needs you to look into your eyes, right? We need each other in that way. Do you want to add anything else, students down there? I want to make sure you have freedom to just say anything you want, because we're going to go into some Q&A. Q&R, I like to call it, question and a response, because we don't always have all the answers. Uh, does anybody have a question out there? If you can just raise your hand and say it nice and loud, I'll repeat it. Yes, Lynn, I know your name. So how can we make this film available to other people? How can it be made available to other people? We are in the process right now. Um, thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. And really quickly to you, one of the things that we wanted to make sure that we had in the film is we didn't want to highlight the individual students who died. And we were very um, purposeful in doing that and wanting to make it about the students who were living there. And so there were purposeful reasons that we did it. But um, being able to keep Taylor's story in there um, and saying that she didn't want to die. She just wanted to make the pain to go away. And we know that so many people feel that way. Um, and to acknowledge it. And by acknowledging it is usually always the first step. So thank you for saying that. So I just wanted to put that out there really quickly. Um, but to your question, um, for schools and universities and libraries, it's available on Alexander. Um, street and that information is on our website edgesuccessmovie.com so you can find it there and hopefully within the next month it should be available for streaming um, on iTunes and other platforms and as soon as we have that we have a we just had to get all of our um, what, what we call in um, the film industry deliverables to our distributor and it should be coming shortly so we're super excited about that um, we would love to be able to get this to as many people as possible. Um, as you saw, maybe in the credits, we have partnered with a great organization called the Jed Foundation. Um, and they are really big on having those conversations. They have a great campaign called Seize the Awkward. So how to have those awkward conversations, because they are. They're, they're crazy awkward, um, but also important to have. So. We recommend that, too. I think we have a slide if you want to put that up there so people can snap a photo of it. Any other questions? Yes, go ahead right there. Well, I just want to make a comment. Yes. I just wanted to share something with me. I'm a lucky parent. I still have my daughter. But when she was about 14, she started cutting. She had an eating disorder. Her and I went to therapy like two times a week for a few years. And they keep telling me she had a suicidal ideology. And I'm like, well, how do you know she's not going to kill herself? Like, how do I know she's not going to do it? I had no idea. I tried to talk to her. I didn't know how to talk to her. They kept telling me, the psychologist, just let her be and, you know, sort of don't pressure her. And what you were saying, Glenn, about the changes, she was miserable. She was horrible. I went to a meeting one night. My husband was home with her. I said, how is she? He said, oh my god, she was singing. Christmas carols in the shower. She's in bed now. She's doing great. I'm like, oh my god, this is wonderful. My husband and I sat down. Five minutes later, she comes running out of her room. 
I just took Tom ibuprofen. Again, what, the, the girl in the movie. I just took Tom ibuprofen. My tummy hurts. I'm scared. I didn't know what to do. If it weren't for my husband, who said, you get in the truck. You get in the truck. We are going down to Kaiser emergency right now. We would have 12 ibuprofen she took. And they told us that if we hadn't given her to the emergency ward when we did, as of the next day, oh, they pumped, they gave her the charcoal, they pumped her stomach, and if we hadn't done what we did, the next day she would be on kidney dialysis for the rest of her life. And nothing I want to share is what we're all saying. It's so hard to know. It's so hard to tell. Again, I'm a lucky one. My daughter's 21. She's over here right now. But they said it's it's so sad that so many of our teenagers right. are trying to and, right. and don't do it all the way out there just like living like terrible lives. And we have to, we have to be able to figure it out. Mm -hmm. I don't know how. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I just got lucky. But I, this is... What's your name? Lori. Lori, thank you. I think what I hear you saying too is it's messy, it's complicated. Uh, some of us are on different sides of this journey. Uh, I'm glad that your daughter is okay and that your husband and you have intervened. Um, and there is sometimes no solution, right? We so we want to find the solutions, uh, but some of us aren't that lucky. You know, my my grandmother gave me all the signs. Uh, she lived six hours from me in San Diego. And uh, because I'm a pastor, I was the one she call. I'm not feeling good. I, I don't want to live. I'm a burden. My grandfather had died of dementia. She was telling me, give me all the signs. I, I would pray with her, right? I, I could not save her. And she ultimately you know, took her um, life and died by suicide. And it, it was, uh, I, don't, I still am processing it six years later. Uh, and talking about how do we move on from that. I know that that's some of us in this room are processing and we have grief that just circles around. Um, uh, one thing I take away is relationship with people. Uh, we need to make time for each other. We need to make time to be honest and transparent. And as a parent, I'm learning too. I need to tell my kids, I get sad sometimes. I get really, really sad and overwhelmed. And uh, I don't, dad doesn't know what to do at times. So making that a, a normal thing to be able to say without being guilted. Kara, here you go. Oh, Pastor. Uh, I just wanted to mention that as parents, sometimes it's it's important to know what your role is in the situation because sometimes it's it's not very helpful to be the person that's trying to fix everything and the person that's trying to be your biggest supporter because it's it's really hard to talk to a parent about that. I am a very open person, as I'm sure you can probably already tell. Um, I talk to everybody. I'll tell everybody about my problems. But when it comes to my parents, and my mom specifically, I just can't. Mm -hmm. And it gets really overwhelming and overbearing because she is a very open person and wants to help and is like, what's wrong, what's wrong? Like, I wanna, I wanna be involved. Like, you make me feel this and that because of your emotions, but it just, it's, just not a helpful situation because I it doesn't make me feel comfortable you know so 
Um, you and Ms. Ruley were in a mental health first aid training yesterday, and as we kind of learned, it's important to know when you are the one to help or when you can be the bridge to the person who can really help, like a therapist or a psychologist or maybe a school counselor, just getting your child someone that can help them, even if it's just telling them that, like, I want you to talk to someone, whether that be your friend, your boyfriend, your brother, your teacher, just somebody, if not me. Kara, yeah. I, I hear you saying something that I read in an article one time, that if a child has, outside of their parents, has five significant adult relationships in their life, that chances are they will resort when they feel like they're pressed and they don't know what to do, they will resort to one of those people, and it could be a pastor, it could be an aunt, it could be a teacher, an educator, a counselor, like five significant relationships. We all need those in our life. So I, I really love what you just said, and you know, not to put more pressure on us as parents, but thinking about that, uh, are there ways that you can point your children to someone else? You know, do you, my wife has a best friend since kindergarten, and she's anti-Indy, and she's always over at her house, and my kids know they can talk to Auntie Indy and go to Auntie Indy to talk about things, and I really appreciate that. So yeah, thank I you. I talk to my aunt more than yeah. I talk to my mom about my stuff. <laughs> well, mom doesn't want to hear that, but thank you, Auntie, for that. <laughs> All right, one or two more questions. Anybody? Some Q and I that we can respond to. Anybody else want to ask any other things? We don't have to. It's okay. We have we have organizations out in the lobby that you can follow up with and talk. Yes, last question then. What's being done to help kids talk to each other? Students, want to answer that? How are you guys, are you guys talking to each other or texting each other? What's it like, <laughs> snapping? Well, it obviously very much depends on the people, because a lot of people are much more open than others, especially with different friend groups, different sort of vibes that people go with. But I am really trying on this campus to make the topic more approachable and more kind. Uh, there is an organization called Bring Change to Mind that pairs with high schools all around Bay Area, and I think they're expanding to a lot of California now. But they have paired with our school. They give us grant money to put on uh, events based around mental health, fundraisers, events to just help end the stigma, you know, to, to just let people know that it's okay and that we're trying and last year we had our first annual wellness week that I organized and it was my little child and I was really proud of it <laughs> we had different events you know about self-help and we had all so I just want to add that yeah. that was the week after Warren died yeah so that was so powerful for me that because it was the first ever and it just happened then and just the way the whole school community came together it was incredible so thank you for that yeah thanks for organizing things like that <laughs> i think it takes intentionality i think we all know uh making an appointment you know, to hang out with your spouse or your friend or whoever, it, it takes intention. We put things in our calendar for meetings at work. Well, you know, why not put things in for face-to-face -face conversation? Uh, I love cell phone and I love social media, but we also know that can be intrusive too. And so how do you say we're going to have no cell phone times and we're just going to talk old-fashioned? My kids call it old-timey ways. So uh, it's important. Can we thank our panelists tonight? BraveMaker is a 501c3 non-profit organization. Our work is funded by generous patrons like you. 
support the podcast with a tax-deductible donation at bravemaker.com. Thanks for listening to the Brave Maker podcast. Subscribe, give us a rating, and share with a friend.